Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast. I'm your host, Steve Kramer of Kramer Basketball and the Coach's Edge. Thank you for joining me today on this episode, points of emphasis that officials are looking for as we dive into basketball season. This is a very important topic for all of our coaches to listen to. And here's a few of the heavy hitters that we touched on within this discussion. Player control, timeouts, screening, unsportsmanlike conduct, and traveling. Listen, I, I consider Chip an expert in his field. And it was really important for me to be able to have him an official on to discuss some of the points of emphasis as we really dive in to this season. So if you find a beneficial, share it out with another official, share it out with another coach. Say, yeah, I think this can help you out as we all try to get the edge, get an advantage as we dive into the season. Thanks again to Chip for joining the show. Let's get to it. I'd like to give a warm Coach's Edge welcome to official Chip Clark. And uh, if if you're a longtime listener of the Coach's Edge, you've heard Chip on a few of our past episodes. And he's like the, he's the official that I reach out to if I really have any big questions, if I see anything going on in the game. And so it is the perfect time to have him on the Coach's Edge podcast as we gear up and head into basketball season. So Chip, thanks for being back on the Coach's Edge. Steve, it's a pleasure to be back, man. Thanks so much for having me. I always enjoy our conversations together around the rules and different points of emphasis, and I'm excited for us to unpack what we've got today. Yeah, I got a passion for the game of basketball, as do you, and uh, we, we, we steer that in different directions, which I think makes us a, a good interview and uh, conversation that I know a lot of coaches are going to benefit from. Before we get into some of the points of emphasis for this basketball season, we'll go high school, we'll go college, talk about some of the differences. Um, what gets you fired up most for this upcoming year? Clean slate, man. It's a clean slate. Every time, uh, every time that ball is tipped in the air for the first time, every time we toss that ball for the jump ball for the first time, it just gets your juices flowing, man. I mean, like the anticipation for the season for officials is no different than players and coaches. We, we have the same, I mean, excitement in, in preparation um, and so once that that tossed ball is up in the air and that that first that first jump ball occurs, it's go time, man. And all that preparation we put in in the offseason um, to lead up to that point, it's where it starts paying off. And so uh, just being able to we've got goals just like players and coaches do. You know, a lot of us a lot of us have goals to continue to climb the ladder and continue to elevate our game to get to the next levels. And uh, and so it's just a, it's a clean slate, man. It's a chance to prove all the work we've put into ourselves, you know, not necessarily to other people. Um, we, while we were out there in high school for, you know, mostly for the kids and, you know, all that stuff, um, you know, there, a lot of us, we have passions and goals of our own. So we do it for ourselves too. Um, and it's not to be noticed by anybody else um, except our, our coordinators and our supervisors and stuff like that. But it's to prove to ourselves that, that all that preparation that we've put in is paying off. Well, why don't you touch on that for a little bit, especially for our, we've had a lot of, which is great. We've had a lot of new listeners to the Coach's Edge in the past month or so. Um, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of idea of the, of where you officiate and also the levels that you officiate? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a uh, men's college basketball official um, in NAI. So the Sun Conference here in Florida, I'm, I'm from Florida. Uh, Lakeland, Florida is where I, I live, me, my wife, and my son. Um, and so I officiate college basketball in the state of Florida. 
for NAI, the Sun Conference, for junior colleges, um, have goals to, to become a NCAA, you know, D1 men's college official someday. Um, but I officiate on the men's side in college. That's my passion. Um, and uh, then I also officiate some high school games as time permits. I'm also the interim, uh, just the newly interim president um, of our local high school basketball officials association. Um, and so I, it's an honor to serve our high school members and try to advance um, our on-court performance, you know, and as, as a whole. And so that's a huge responsibility and something I don't take lightly, but I love being around the game. I love our officials um, and I love, I love working, man. So down here in Florida, just living the life, living the dream. Well, those, those officials are lucky to have you. And this is one of the reasons why it's awesome to have you on the podcast is because you have your hands in both the college game and the high school game. And there's some differences, which we're going to get into in a little bit, but let's go high school first. That's the majority of our listenership as high school basketball coaches. What are some of the points of emphasis for the 2021, 2022 basketball season? Excellent. Yeah, we'll dive right in. So I'm going to get the the easiest two out of the way first. Um, from a points of emphasis standpoint for the National Federation of High School uh, Basketball Rules Committee, um, one of the first points of emphasis is there's been a signal change for team control fouls. So I'll just touch on this briefly. Um, the reason why coaches should know this is it's an indicator as to what's coming next, right? So they've eliminated the punch signal for team control fouls. Okay, so I know you can't see me doing this, but you can you can kind of visualize if you're listening. You know, the same way we signal player control fouls or charges, so to speak, where we stop the clock with a closed fist and then we put one hand behind the head and then point the direction that we're going. That is going to be the signal for all team control fouls as well. So if you see an illegal screen, which we're going to jump into in a minute, if we call an illegal screen, Instead of doing the punch signal in the direction that we're going now, um, that has been eliminated. Now you will see a signal just like a player control foul where we'll stop the clock with a closed fist, hand behind the head, and then the other hand is pointing the direction that we're going to be going. Um, so, and the reason for that is this. There's sometimes confusion between the key stakeholders in the game about what's going to happen next or who the foul was on sometimes, you know, um, what team. So when we do that and we do the hand behind the head, anytime you see the hand behind the head signal and point in the other direction, you know it was either a player control or a team control foul. And if your team was the one who was fouled and you're in the bonus, anytime you see the hand, hand behind the head signal and pointing your direction, then you know you're not going to be shooting any free throws, no bonus free throws for that on team control and player control fouls. So we got that one out of the way. That's an easy one. Second one is timeout administration. I'll, I'll lead with the story on Twitter, you know, and, and a lot of coaches follow me on Twitter and I love being able to interact with them on rules uh, just as I do with you, Steve. And uh, one sent me a DM the other day, um, a coach and a high school ba boys basketball coach, I think. So he sent me one the other day asking me about how this is supposed to be handled. Well, his team, I think, was like down by one with like 10 seconds left. They had just scored his team had just scored. So the other team's bringing the ball up the court with 10 seconds left and they're going into like, you know, they're potentially going to go foul or whatever, but instead he calls a timeout on purpose, even though his team does not have control of the ball and the official stops the clock and grants him a timeout erroneously. Now think to yourself, how many times have you done that? Like, do you do it intentionally? Probably shouldn't, but I, Hey, listen, 
to each their own. It's our fault as officials if we grant the timeout, right? So the, the, the official granted the timeout and then figured out that, you know, the other coach is, is irate because his player's bringing the ball up the floor and now he's going to have to inbound the ball again and try to get the ball in. Well, in that situation, he asked me, how do you handle this? Well, in that situation, that's just a tell between your legs moment for an official. You just have to admit, if you've already granted the timeout, you cannot change that by rule. If you've granted a timeout, we're going forward with that timeout, whether it's erroneous or not, right? So, because that's not a correctable error. So in that moment, you just have to go to the opposing coach and just apologize and say, I'm not going to let that happen again. So he asked, how do you handle that? And that's what I told him. Well, I think that's one of the reasons for the point of emphasis this year on timeout administration. They put a heavy emphasis on making sure the officials have to ensure that a player of a player has control of the ball um, before they can award a timeout to that or they can grant a timeout to the coach of a player who's in control of the ball or the team or a teammate can request that timeout or the player in control of the ball. But there has to be player control not just team control. It's got to be player control on the court for us to grant a timeout to the appropriate party. And the emphasis is heavy on, we have to make absolutely sure that the appropriate party is requesting that timeout before we grant it. So I think a case play they gave is there's a division line trap, a half court trap coming on in the front court. And we, we kind of see as an official, the player has control of the ball and then the defenders are coming to trap or whatever. And we've kind of, we hear a, a person calling for a timeout over here, but we're not sure of who it is. So we glance back real quick. We see it's the head coach. So, but by the time we turn back around, we see that the ball is loose now. We cannot grant that timeout. There ha we have to be sure that there's player control on the court and the, the, the head coach is calling a timeout and requesting a timeout. If it was the assistant requesting the timeout, we cannot grant that timeout. It has to be the head coach or a player of the team in control of the ball. So just be mindful of that. It makes a special emphasis to say that just because head coaches need to understand that just because they request a timeout does not mean it's going to be granted. Uh, that's a great, that's a great point. Good detail for coaches to coaches to know, because they're going to be, hey, I call timeout, I call timeout. And as an official say, coach, I had to make sure that I, I knew it was you and that your team had possession of the basketball right before before we can get into that. So I'm glad that you you shared that one. What else do we have? Well, so real quick, last one on that is yeah. um, another situation in which this could pop up is loose balls on the floor. We've got players diving for the, the ball on the floor. As long as they're not illegally contacting or diving on somebody else, which would be a foul. Um, people scrambling for the law, for the loose ball. A lot of times they've, the national federation has identified that a lot of officials in order to avoid a scrum or any rough and physical play on diving for loose balls. Sometimes they'll too, they're too quick to grant a timeout to a coach um, or to even call a held ball. You see that a lot too, you know, where there's not two people con you know, controlling the ball at the same time, two opponents, but same thing with timeouts. A lot of times they'll hear somebody call for a timeout, but that player has not gained control of the ball yet. So a great way, I've got a great play from one of our high school officials last year that I clipped when I watched their film. You know, great, great job. He's, he's right here, the bench is across from him, but the players are diving on the floor. Nobody's controlled the ball, but that coach is yelling at the top of his lungs for a timeout and he does not grant it. 
and he waits until that last minute where the player absolutely controls the ball, and then he hits the whistle and grants the timeout. That's how it's supposed to be done. No, that makes that makes perfect perfect sense. I love it. Keep going. This is good. Good. Um, so screening is going to be another one. We'll spend a couple of minutes on this, but screening the the illegal illegal screens and legal screens, knowing the difference between the two. Okay, um, it talks about screening screening a moving opponent, screening a stationary opponent, and here's what we need to understand: screening rules are just a little bit different than guarding rules, but there is a lot of similarities. Okay, um, to establish a legal screening position, just make sure that your player has both feet on the floor. They're in a stationary position. They have to have both feet on the floor in a stationary position. Now, keep in mind, you can be the screener can be facing any direction. They don't have to be facing like the guarding rule. They don't have to be facing their opponent, right? So they can be facing any direction. They just have to be stationary, okay? That's if, if they're setting a screen on a stationary defender, then they can establish a legal screening position anywhere short of contact. So they just can't initiate contact, but they can go right up next to that defender and stand right there. If that defender is stationary, stand right there anywhere short of contact. And that's a legal screening position as long as they're stationary. Keep in mind, extending your elbows. We see this a lot of times, extending your elbows. That's outside of your vertical plane. Um, that's not permitted. Okay. Um, for, for females, you can put your your kind of your cross your arms in front of your chest area or whatever. So you can protect yourself like that. Just make sure those you, when you cross your arms, it's not extended out towards the opponent that you're trying to screen. OK, and hopefully you guys can visualize some of this as I'm talking about it. Um, also, very big emphasis on the width, the legal width of the screen. All right. So by rule, nothing outside of shoulder width apart. A legal screen is stationary. The, the, the screener has to be stationary with their legs approximately shoulder width apart. If it's outside, if your feet and your legs are outside of shoulder width apart, that's an excessively wide screen. Now, just because you're set up in a legal position as a screener doesn't mean you've created a foul, right? Or you've, because we have to have contact, all right, to, to be able to call an illegal screen or a blocking foul on that screener. So with this in mind, here's some, I'm going to give you guys some things that we look for as officials that are triggers in our head to know when an illegal screen has occurred. And hopefully that'll help you coach your players a little bit better and implement some of this. So when we, when I see an excessively wide screen and I see that those legs outside shoulder width apart, if I was a coach, the opposing coach, and I've noticed that this screener for the other team has been setting up excessively wide all the time, I would have my, my defender who's getting around that screen, trip over his extended leg. Every time I would, because it's going to be called for an offensive foul every, or a team control foul, illegal screen, blocking foul on that screener every single time. Because what we look for is how that contact and how that screen impacts the defender. If that defender tries to get around that screen and trips over that extended leg or it turns his body, then that's a dead giveaway that that's an illegal screen and we're going the other way. So just something to keep in mind on illegal screens. If I was an opposing coach, that's how I would teach my players to do it. Now we don't want flopping in the game. It needs to make sure, and you, do, you definitely don't want to run into that leg and, and intentionally try to injure the person, sure. but trying to get around and, and hop over or get around it. If you, if you are impact, if your defender shows that they're impacted by that, that excessively wide screen, then that's going to be an illegal screen.
Well, it's a great point that you bring up because that screener could be well beyond shoulder width and they are about to get called for an illegal screen. But just like you said, if that defensive player goes well around where that player is, there's no contact. You can't call the foul. No contact, no foul. Nothing illegal. Yeah. Before we get back to the episode, I want to thank you for listening to the Coach's Edge podcast. And if you find this episode beneficial, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. That goes a really long way as we continue to build the Coach's Edge. And most of all, share this episode out with someone else who you think also may find it beneficial. That's what the Coach's Edge is all about, trying to give you an edge, an advantage. Let's get better together. Back to the show. And that's something to, to remember. A couple of other different types of illegal screens that we see is specifically a lot of a lot of coaches like to run high ball screen action um, and and kind of into a pick and roll right and so one of the things that we've noticed is defenders who are trying to fight under screens and then we have the we have the screener roll a little early right so they go up to set their screen but then they go ahead and roll when they see the defender the defender switching right. Um, and so then to seal off that defender who's trying to, who's going under, they'll roll their body back into that defender and seal them off either with extended arms or throwing their body into them that displaces them. If it displaces that defender or knocks them off their path, then that's an illegal screen as well. Okay. So just something to be mindful of when you go to that pick and roll and that roller, that roller seals his defender just make sure that they're not using an extended arm to, to ward that defender off or that they're not entering that defender's path and pushing them off their spots. Okay. Um, last that thing seems on, like it's gotta be a tough call. It's a very tough call. Yeah. These are things that we, when we talk, when I talked at the start about preparation for the season and the preparation that we put in the off season and even during the season in reviewing our game film or reviewing clips we watch a, we, I watch hundreds of clips on these things so that when I see it in a game, it's almost like I'm on autopilot. I see this red flag that I've got a red flags book of things that if I see, then this is going to happen or anticipate this. So whenever I see an excessively wide screen, it's a red flag to me that if I see any contact to that excess, that extended leg of the screener, then it's going to be an illegal screen. And it's just easy. I'm on autopilot then. As soon as I see it, boop, I know I'm going this way. Or if I see a screen, if I see a pick and roll and I see him seal off by displacing that defender, then I know it's going to be an illegal screen. Another one for screening, and then we'll move on to the other topics, is um, they, they had an emphasis this year on we, we need to be, when there's a screen on a moving opponent, this is the one that's really tough. Screening a moving opponent, time and distance are factors. The screener has to allow time and distance for that defense, that moving opponent to avoid contact. Okay. Now real quick on this, before I get into the nuts and bolts of this screening action and the screener's responsibility, I want to make absolutely sure that I stress this point. Even if a screener is in an illegal position, let's say they're excessively wide, or let's say they did not give or let's say they're excessively wide or they got their elbows extended out of their vertical plane. If that defender makes no attempt to get around that screen and just charges through the torso of that screener, even if the screener is in an illegal position, when the defender goes through the torso of that screener, then the defender is still responsible for that contact. 
So think of it this way. If the contact did not occur to any of the illegal parts of the screener, the extended leg, the extended arms, and that defender makes no attempt to avoid contact and just barrels through that, then the defender is going to be called for a pushing foul of blowing, basically blowing up a screen is what we call it. Okay. Now I can move on to the screening and moving opponent. Time and distance are factors. Okay. So if you're screaming, screening, excuse me, a moving opponent, time and distance are factors. And what they specify in the rules in NFHS rule four, section 40, the screening rule is that appropriate time and distance is based on how fast the defender is moving, but it should be no more than two strides. So one to two strides, if that, if they're moving rapidly and the defender sets up and or excuse me, the screener sets up as a screen on a moving opponent and they only allow them one step to try to avoid contact. And then that defender barrels into them. Then that's not the defender's fault because the screener did not allow ample time and distance for that defender to avoid contact. Now, if that defender has two steps to avoid contact and takes those two steps after the screener is in a stationary position and then barrels into them, then the defender, even if they didn't see the screener, is still responsible for contact. So what, the, the whole one to two steps thing, we got to be mindful of, and that's what's really difficult to determine in real time. Yeah, really well, you see that a lot in the the backcourt, right? When uh, you know, I I call it head hunting, you know, where yeah. you, you got you got the big, and you know that guard will try to speed up that defender. Um, but you you painted a picture very clearly of what's going to be an offensive or a defensive foul um, as far as the responsibilities that that each player has, and um, that should clear up a lot of bang bang. I mean, you can get. I still remember one of the worst times I ever got screened in a game. I got, I got hit in the ear. Guy was about six, eight. His shoulder was like the size of my head. And so he's six, eight, I'm about six, three. I hear my, my ear like pops and I couldn't hear out of that ear for like a couple of days, but it comes back to the fact that did any of my teammates call out screen? No, no, they did not. And so, I mean, you got to communicate in the game, uh, regardless of what's happening, you can save yourself a lot of trouble. So little side story there, keep going. Oh, I, I, I love that side story because it sets up what I was going to say next, because that's one we see from time to time, right? We see the big setup around the division line, around half court, right? And they're set up there and the defender, the defender can't see them. They're on ball, right? The on ball defender is guarding the ball coming up from back court to front court. Well, that dribbler is going to run that player right into that screen, his defender, right? Well, you see the big setup stationary sometimes for, you know, like five or 10 steps for the defender, right? That's ample time and distance, even if they can't see them. So that they make special, they take special care in the rules to say, even if the contact is severe, then it could still be a defensive foul on the defender. Even, even if it's severe, we have to rule if it's incidental contact or if it's going to be a foul, right? Or illegal contact. So you could be, that big could be set up at half court. That dribbler could run, and, and that defender, on ball defender, has five to 10 steps to be able to avoid contact, even though he doesn't see it. So that contact, that defender could run smack dab into that big who's set up in a legal screening position and, be, and fall to the floor, be concussed or knocked out, and it could still be a no call. Or it could be an offensive foul, depending on if that contact the defender initiated into the illegal screener displaced that illegal screener and put them at a disadvantage. 
So just something to be aware of. Even if contact is severe, I mean, every coach in America, I would probably be the same way, or every coach in the world, if they see their defender just get knocked out by that big who's standing at half court, they're going to scream. Everybody in the stands and coaches are going to scream for an illegal screen on that. But it was perfectly legal. So just keep in mind about that. And then screening a moving opponent, last thing I'll say, is illegal blind back screens are something that we see quite a bit. So if you're one of those coaches that teaches to do a blind back screen on a defend on ball defender. So say you send your big up to around the, you know, three point line to set a blind back screen on that defender. You are not allowed to be anywhere short of contact on that. You have to allow time and distance when screening in a, 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 an opponent outside of their visual field. So if that defender cannot see you, time and distance are relevant. So setting up right there behind him and he turns and runs right into you, no, that's an illegal screen. If he, if he wasn't able to see you and you did not uh, allow time and distance for him to avoid contact, that screener is in an illegal position. So just something to be mindful of. Got to give them at least a step. If they're stationary and you're setting a blind back screen, give them at least a step to avoid contact. Because if you don't, then your, your player is going to be called for an illegal screen on that. And I can see that happening a lot on some of those hammer screens off the ball as well, yeah. right? You got somebody on the, the weak side wing, somebody from the corner or the short corner stepping up against that, that off ball help side defender. They can't see anything. And all of a sudden, boom, they get smoked in the back because the player on the wing is dropping down to the weak side corner. I mean, that's another situation where you can see that quite a bit. Absolutely. That that's a great point too. And it, and also it made me think of something else, even though it's not related, another illegal screen that is, is become quite mainstream these days is the dribble handoffs, right? So you got dribble handoffs around the perimeter. Coaches just make absolutely sure that you teach your players on dribble handoffs that they must become stationary prior to contact on that, okay? So if they're the ball handler and they're dribbling around the perimeter and you've got a guy running from the slot, to take that to the top of the, take that ball into the top of the key. When you're dribbling over there, your ball handler, your dribbler needs to make absolutely sure before he hands that ball off that he's stationary. Because a lot of times what we're seeing, and this is a quick way to get an illegal screen called, is just because you have the ball in your hand does not mean you can't be charged with an illegal screen. Okay. We see it too many times they're dribbling towards there and right before they hand it off or right after they hand it off, that ball, former ball handler is still moving into that defender, that opponent. And if there's contact and they're not, sta you're not stationary, then you're going to be charged with an illegal screen on that dribble handoff. Great detail on all the, all the screening on ball, off the ball, you know, speed, space, visual, great detail. So any, any coach curious about the screening, just rewind, you know, 10 minutes or so and, and listen to Chip. This was, this was really good stuff. What else you got for us? All right, so there's two other uh, points of emphasis from NFHS this year, and I want to go over this one first because I want to save traveling for last because one of the things I think you and I have talked about that you want to discuss is kind of the differences between NFHS and NCAA on the traveling rule interpretation for this upcoming season. So I want to save that NFHS point of emphasis for last, and that'll be a great segue into the differences between leagues. Is that cool? All right, good deal. So this, this other point of emphasis is a touchy subject sometimes, and I want to be very diplomatic in how I address this, especially since coaches are going to be listening to this. And I, I want to first clarify 
I love the relationship that I have with coaches through our clinics that Matt and I have done with United Basketball Clinics in the past. I've, I've been fortunate to, to develop really good relationships with a lot of coaches across the country um, and even the world. And I want to thank you guys, first of all, um, the coaches that I've met, because my talks and conversations that I have with you and the relationships I have with you has helped shape how I address um, communicating with coaches and players. It helps me understand what you guys are thinking a little bit more. It helps me have more empathy for you guys on the court. It makes me a better official. So I wanted to say thank you for that, first of all, first and foremost. Okay. Now, with that said, one of the points of emphasis that NFHS did point out this year, special emphasis on this is unsporting conduct. Okay. Touchy subject, I know, but it's one that had to be addressed because over the last few years, the, the National Federation has identified what we've identified in our association as well, that unsporting conduct has run rampant and been allowed and permitted for way too long from the key stakeholders in the game. NFHS points out this year, unsporting conduct is not permitted from any of the key stakeholders. Um, spectators, coaches, players, bench personnel, and officials. I'll say that one more time too, in case you think I'm preaching at you guys, I'm preaching at us too. They've identified that there's officials that are displaying unsporting conduct as well, and that will no longer be tolerated. Disrespectfully addressing a coach as an official, disrespectfully addressing a coach, and definitely if you disrespect a player and talk down on them or, or show any type of unsporting conduct, that will not be tolerated. I know a lot of coaches, I know this because I just had my coaches meeting uh, we did our preseason coaches meeting with our local high school coaches the other day where we talked about this. And I wanted to make sure I stress this because I know there's a belief among coaches that, and, and granted it's different from a referee association to association, right? And state to state even, but coaches feel a certain type of way about officials misconduct. And so when an official is disrespectful to, or when there is disrespectful to an official, the coach gets a technical foul, right? But if we're dis disrespectful to a coach or to a player, what's our what what's our you know punishment? And so I understand where you're coming from on that. And so what I told our coaches and and talk to your local high school officials association and get their feedback on this too. I I encourage all of our coaches, to, all of you coaches, to do that um, to try to get the edge, so to speak, right, and understand what they're looking for. Um, I had to plug that in there, Steve, to get the edge. No, I certainly, I certainly appreciate it. We're all about getting, <laughs> giving you the edge here. So this is what it's all about. Perfect. So, so I would encourage you guys to talk to them about this because what we do for our association, what I told our local coaches is if you see any of our officials display any unsporting conduct between any key stakeholders in the game, I don't care if it's game administration, if it's the coaches, coaching staff, bench personnel, or players, or even spectators, if you see that, report it to us immediately. Because here's what's going to happen. We're going to talk to our officials. We're going to review the game film in question. And if we identify that that official was, in fact, displaying unsporting conduct to any of those key stakeholders, we are going to talk to them about that and give them a strong encouragement to change course. We are going to also monitor from there on out any other unsporting conduct on their behalf. If they continue to not heed our instruction on that, then they will simply put, they're not going to get as many games. 
even though we're struggling to fill positions sometimes now because there's a shortage of officials and we're going to get to the reason for that here in a minute when we address unsporting conduct from the other key stakeholders but even though there's a shortage of officials we will not tolerate unsporting conduct if you if you're an official in our association and you want to treat other people with disrespect you won't work games it's it's that serious we have to uphold we've got a code of conduct that we have to uphold and people already don't like us as officials. So we have to be above brand. Uh, we've got to be above board, right? We can't let any of our extracurricular stuff distract from the fact that we're out there to do a job. And if anything that makes us look like we have an ego or that we're disrespectful to people, it cannot be tolerated as an official. So I just want to get that out of the way first and tell you guys that. But I do have to address this. Unsporting conduct from players, from coaches, and spectators. Coaches, this is a coaching podcast, right? So I'm going to address you guys first. Coaches, I, I, I'm never going to tell you how to coach because I've never coached. I've helped organize coaching clinics in the past, and I've heard some of the best clinicians in the game speak about coaching and some of the best trainers like Steve, right, and, and development coaches. So I've, I've heard them speak at our clinics. So I have a good working knowledge of coaching, but I've never been a coach, right? Maybe some of you guys have been officials before and understand the rules, but here's what I wanted to point out. Unsporting conduct to officials, and, and, and a lot of it stems from you guys not understanding where we're coming from. A lot of it stems from us not doing things right all the time. All right, so I get it. There may be times where you feel like you've gotten screwed by the official, okay? I understand that. Here's where empathy comes in. But I have to say, unsporting conduct will not be tolerated anymore. And by that, disrespectfully, I would encourage each of you to go to your NFHS rulebook, okay? Each of you coaches should have an NFHS rulebook. Go and look at rule 10 under fouls and penalties, okay? And then look at section five for bench personnel. Because technically, head coaches, you guys are bench, per you're considered bench personnel, all right? Because you are in the bench area, right? Also look at section six of rule 10, which is the head coach's rule. Read through those items in that rule. So the bench technical foul rule is rule 10, section five. The head coach's rule for technical fouls is rule 10, six. Look through that and read through that and ask yourself, do I do any of these things? Disrespectfully and address, address an official. Incite undesirable crowd reactions. Attempt to influence an official's call. Travel, travel, that's a travel. Do you yell travel at the ref 17 times the game? Well, that you're attempting to influence our decisions. Do you do it? Just think to yourself, you know? So there's a lot of things in there. Um, or, or rising up from the bench to just show disgust for a call. If I'll say this, coaches. If any of, and we've told our coaches this in our area, from bench personnel, that's assistant coaches or any team member sitting on your bench, substitutes or team members alike, assistant coaches. If any of them rise up from the bench to show disgust for one of our calls, our officials' calls, that's an immediate bench technical foul, a, a charge to that coach or that player. Immediate. And guess what? Head coaches, you're not going to like this. That's indirectly charged to you as the head coach as well. You're in charge of your bench and making sure that they're staying sporting in their behavior. 
So that means you've lost coaching box privileges for the remainder of the game. You have to stay seated on your bench unless it's to call a timeout or, or anything like that. So be mindful of that. We're instructed to call bench technical fouls on your on bench personnel. And one of the things we have at our disposal as officials, and sorry if I'm coming across too harsh on this, right? I'm just, I'm just wanting to set that expectation level for you guys now. Now, I know it varies from state to state and association to association, right? So I'm saying this is something that we're teaching our coaches that we've been taught by the NFHS that is no longer permitted. These are just some examples, but you know, that just be mindful of that. You stand a chance to get a technical foul or your bench does if they do any of these things listed in rule 10 section five or 10 section six. So just read through it, be mindful of that. One of the things we have at our disposal for head coaches is the use of a coach's warning. But again, in the NFHS point of emphasis, it says that we are not required to give a head coach a warning before issuing a technical foul to them. It's not required. So if you're almost at that line, but you haven't crossed it yet, what I'm going to do, if, if my talking with you and communicating with you has not been successful, I'm going to boop, uh, bench warning to the head coach of, of White. And I'm going to give an official warning to the book. And then I'm going to tell the head coach, coach, that's your official warning. Anything further, anything unsporting further is going to, to, to result in a technical foul. And then we charge, we, we penalize accordingly after that. If that's if they haven't heeded my, any, any of my requests so far, right? And hopefully our officials are going to try to handle this diplomatically, handle it professionally with empathy, right? We, we teach our officials in our association, know the situation. If it's 20 seconds left in a one-point game, and that, that head coach's player just get, who's down by one point just gets called for a charge on a bang-bang play, and now the ball's going to the other team who's up by one, we know that as soon as we call that, hopefully we're getting the plays right because that's our number one duty, right? But if we know that that's a charging foul and that's legitimately the right call, we know that head coach is going to react in that situation, right? There's not many head coaches that won't. So give a little bit longer of a leash on that. Now, if they cross the line and they're jumping out on the court and all that stuff, then no, we need to, we need to handle that and discipline accordingly, right? But, but just give a little bit longer leash. Know the situation. Coach, what did you see on that play? I understand, I understand, Coach. You know, this, I understand it's a big point in the game. I can tell you what I saw if you want, but you know, we're going to make sure that we keep it, keep it chill here. Okay. So, I mean, just, we're teaching different techniques to our officials and our association of how to effectively communicate with coaches, but we got to know the situation. Adding a technical foul right there for unsporting behavior by the coach is not going to do you any favors. <laughs> now we're saying if they, if they cross the line, tee them up, but if they don't, and, and, or if just give a little bit longer of a leash in those situations. Right. So coaches disrespectfully addressing officials, all that type stuff. That's something that the NFHS has told us. And I just wanted to set the expectation. It cannot be tolerated any longer. Spectators are another one, but we're supposed to speak to game management ahead of each game so that they're in charge of handling crowd reactions and spectators and their unsporting behavior. I'm telling you, and I told you I'd come back to this. The reason officials, high school officials are leaving officiating in droves because it's, it's an epidemic. I'm just telling you across the country, it's an epidemic. The reason they're leaving in droves 
one of the number one reasons is is because they the behavior of coaches, spectators, and players. That's their number one reason for leaving because they're treated like trash on the court from spectators, coaches, and players. Now, you can say, oh, that official's soft, okay? But what we're asking that you do, and hopefully I'm okay to say that what I'm, I'm hopefully asking, or I'm asking you guys to hopefully do is do what we're trying to do as officials. Ask yourself, is there any validity to this? When a, a coach approaches me and says, Chip, I, I think you handled that incorrectly. The first thing I do is not get defensive. I ask myself, is there any validity to what that coach just told me? Because if there is, then I need to self-examine and I need to do better. So when you hear me talk about some of these things or when you read rule 10-5 or rule 10-6 and see those things that are not permitted and you ask yourself, do I do those things? Be honest with yourself. When I watch my game film, I'm brutally honest with myself. Chip, you missed that call. You've got to do better. I chart that play, and then I make sure if it was a traveling play, I'll go watch 10 traveling plays that day to try to train my eyes a little bit better. Or different. I'm brutally honest with myself. So ask yourself, do I do any of these things? Am I treating officials unsporting? And then ask yourself, what are the advantages of not treating an official with disrespect? Because there are some. If you pick your spots as a coach, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, if you pick your spots as a coach, with the officials and you're not yelling at us 15 times a game or 20 times a game. Let's say you pick three spots in the game to ask me a question about a play that I called. I'm going to, to listen to every word you say, and I'm automatically going to think they probably have a point because you haven't said hardly any words to me the whole game or argued any of the calls that I've made. So when you do actually ask me about a play, man, I really got to take a hard look on that. Now, if I'm just going to be real with you guys. If you're arguing 15, 15 plays with me in a game, I know I'm not that bad of an official because I watch my game film and I, my call percentage is pretty daggum high. I make – my call percentage is probably 40% better, per, higher percentage than your best shooter's field goal percentage on your, on your team. I'm a daggum decent official, right? I know I don't miss 15 calls a game. So if you're arguing 15 calls with me, I'm not listening to much you have to say because I know you're wrong, okay? And that's not ego. That's just I know that I'm not that bad. I miss calls just like every other official. If you argue 15 calls with me in a game, that's on you, man. You don't have a great angle on these plays and you're still wanting to argue with me when angles are everything. I mean, just a step or two right or left can change, impact how you see that play. So you want me to believe that you from your coach's box – 50 feet away are able to see that that defender was not in a legal guarding position when contact occurred. No, not a chance. I'm five, seven feet away from it. And I'm looking at the defender the whole entire time. I'm not even looking at the ball like you are. So I'm looking at the defender to see if they're in a legal position three seconds before you even know the defender exists. And I see they're in a legal position when contact occurred then that's going to be a charging foul. If I see that they weren't in a legal position when contact occurred, then that's a blocking foul. So just know, pick your spots. It's got to be ones that are obvious or it's got to be ones that are, you know, like I understand the concept of working officials. Good officials don't let you work them though because we know better. We know you're just trying to work us for calls on stuff like that. I mean, listen, I believe the best in people. I'm 
optimistic by nature. Like I, I want to believe the best in people and trust in people. But the truth of the matter is, is coaches and officials are not friends. We have competing interests in that game. Your goal for that game is to win the game. My goal for that game is to officiate a safe and fair contest. So when I have a coach approach me and yell at me about call it both ways or call it fair, I wish they would just tell me what they really want, which is I don't want you to call it fair. I want the calls. You don't want me to call it fair as a coach. You really don't genuinely. Now, I understand what you're trying to say is you feel like you've been slighted and you just want evenly, you know, even calls. But truth of the matter is you want you want the calls. Let's be real. Right. So mm -hmm. we have interest in that. And so knowing going into that, what our goals are as officials is key. And then also as officials, understanding what the goals of the coaches are, you know, they're there to coach their team and hopefully get their team to win the game, you know, same thing with all the players. So like, it's, it's, it's very vital that we understand our roles as officials and that coaches understand their roles and that we work together and approach it as a partnership during a game instead of competing coach. I'm not your enemy. I'm not your opponent. Don't treat me like your opponent. Right, right. So, all right, we spent we spent a lot of time on the unsportsmanlike contact, but I, I want to throw one more thought at you, and because I know we're running out of time, we need to talk a little bit about the college rules, and then um, one thing that I feel like I've noticed, and it goes along with what you're talking about with unsportsmanlike conduct, is from the player standpoint, it seems like in the past year or two, I'm seeing a lot more of an offensive player making a shot. And even the first week of Division One basketball started this past week as we're, as we're recording this, not as it comes out, but as we're recording this. And, you know, these are the, the best officials in, in the game. And so I just want to ask you what's allowed and, and what isn't. Where an offensive player scores, whether they hit a three, they have a tough layup. And it seems like I'm seeing this more and more, and this is at every level, but especially the high school and college level, it, it seems like where someone hits a shot, and then all of a sudden they are like yelling at, at the opponent and they're giving them kind of the mean mug and they're, they're flexing or they're sticking their chest out. And from my point of view, watching from the sidelines or from watching on TV is the action that they're performing is towards the opponent that they've just scored on. And it seems like I'm seeing that more and more but not necessarily being called as far. And in my mind, and maybe it's just because similar to you, I feel like I'm a nice guy and I, I wouldn't like just talk a bunch of trash after I hit a layup. I'd be like, well, I was supposed to make the layup. Like that's why you practice. Um, so I'm not a person that really gets too excited about too much. Um, it's like, Hey, you just shouldn't, you shouldn't do it from a behavior standpoint, but is there anything in the, the rules that say, Hey, you can't, you know, make a layup and then kind of walk at somebody and, and mean mug them and scream or something like that. That's a great point. Glad you brought it up. Not going to spend a ton of time, but I want to address this player unsporting conduct is, and that is one of the biggest things is people need to understand that in rule 10 section four is the player technical rule. Coaches read through that and address it with your players, because what you'll find in there is it is a technical foul on a player to bait or taunt your opponent. 
So if the official in our discretion, you don't even want to leave it to our discretion. If I was a coach, I wouldn't, I would tell my players not to leave this to the official's discretion, whether you trust us or not, whether that's the reason or not. Because here's the thing, if we consider it baiting or taunting your opponent, then that's a technical foul at the NCAA level and at the NFHS level. NFHS is player technical foul. It's a class B technical foul in, in NCAA, okay, uh, men's. So what I wanted to point out is this. It actually says in the NFHS rule book, as soon as it says that it's a ta- baiting or taunting an opponent is a player technical foul, it says, note, the NFHS disapproves of any form of taunting which is intended or designed to embarrass, ridicule, or demean others under any circumstances, including on the basis of race, religion, gender, or national origin. If that's not clear, I don't know what is. So in our, in our discretion, if you're doing something to bait or taunt your opponent, then that's going to be a technical foul. If you're celebrating a made three-pointer by running up the court with your back to the play, your defenders or your opponents and, and doing the three or whatever, like I, we're not that concerned about that, right? But if you're literally looking at your opponent and bowing up to them or stepping to them or flexing on them or doing the too strong signal right in their face or anything like that, and you're doing it and directing it or the too small, we see the too small a lot. If you're stepping to them and doing the too small and looking at them like that, that's a technical foul. Now, I'll say this, as far as the NCAA goes on that, there's a little bit more leeway and flexibility um, because it's more commercialized and stuff like that. Um, but it's it's one of those things, because nobody wants to see a bunch of technical fouls in the game, right? Right. But the, the argument we hear all the time, you've seen it on social media, is let the kids play, let them passion, let you know, show emotion. Well, guys, I hate to break it to you, but there's plenty of ways to show passion and emotion without taunting or baiting your opponent. And keep this in mind, if we give a technical foul to your player for taunting or baiting their opponent, I know it sounds backwards, but we're actually trying to protect your player. Because a little known fact, maybe you've seen me share this on social media, Steve, little known fact, by rule, if your player taunts or baits their opponent, and that opponent responds to that taunting or baiting by fighting, even if your player all they did was taunt or bait their opponent and they didn't fight and they didn't throw a punch or anything like that. Both, both players are disqualified because your, your player taunting instigated a fight and that is classified as fighting. And both of those players would be disqualified and have to leave the game. One of the words that you mentioned as you were reading the rule book was demean or demeaning. And that's, to me, in my mind, that's a that paints a really clear picture of when I'm watching a game and I see somebody make a shot, they could turn to the crowd, they could get the crowd fired up. That's that's to their fans, right? But when they when they take that towards their opponent, now okay, there's a big difference here between doing something, hey, we're celebrating, we're excited, crowds fired up. Maybe there's a little showmanship of playing towards the crowd, like like you said. All right, okay. Cool. It's part of the game. As people say, you want to show some emotion, let them play. Cool. But when it's towards the opponent, when it's demeaning towards the opponent, I just want to see that taken out of the game. And, you know, watching college basketball, I get it. Nobody wants to watch a bunch of free throws. Nobody, you know, tuned into the game to watch the officials make a a bunch of basketball, uh, a, a bunch of calls. But to see you know, on ESPN, somebody go up and, and make a shot and all of a sudden they're flexing and they're growling at, at the other team. I'm like, 
come on, man. Can we get can we get rid of this? And listen, I'm okay with the flexing while you're tur- you just dunked. You're turning around, running up the court. I'm okay with you flexing sure. and in the air and stuff like that. Like, but if you directed at an opponent, right? Then you get into gestures like the too small gesture when you just made a layup on somebody, even if you're not facing them. When you do that, who is that intended for? Right. If you say too small, you int- you're literally intending that for the player you just. There's mm-hmm. you can't interpret that or interpret that any other way. You're not telling the fans that they're too small. You're not telling a coach that they're too small. Like it literally is designed to ridicule or embarrass or demean, you know, your opponent on that. So just be careful is all I'm saying. We're not trying to take the fun out of the game. Basketball is a incredible game. We all love it so much. And the passion and emotion that go into it is why it's one of the best games on the planet. And that's why we love it so much. We're not trying to take that out of the game. Also understand the officials are not the one making the rules and giving the directives. We're getting the directives and getting the rules from the rules committees. So if we penalize things that we've been told to penalize, you can't fault us for that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I, I hate passing the buck, but you know, it is what it is. So I would coaches, I would teach your players, listen, celebrate, have fun, enjoy, be emotional, be passionate, just not at the expense of your opponent. Let 100%. anything you do to your opponent, let your game do the talking on that. Right. And, and that way you can avoid any silly, you know, technical fouls or anything like that. Just be, just be cautious with it, you know, and whether, whatever your opinion is on whether or not it should be penalized, just know that the expectation is there this year, that especially in NFHS, that that will be penalized with a player technical foul and players cannot get official warnings in the book for unsporting behavior. So another last thing I'll say on this, if you see an official talking to your player, we're trying to help them. Okay. If you see an official talking to your player, that's us trying to help them and talk them out of certain things so that they do not get penalized with a technical foul. That would be a good time as a coach. If I saw an official talking to my player Next time that official's right in front of me, hey, what were you saying to my players or anything I can help with? Dude, I'm telling you, listen, as an official, we're no, we're no different than other humans, right? If you can strategically talk to us, you could have us. It, it doesn't mean you're going to get calls, but you could have us there at, at kind of your beck and call, right? If you're strate- strategic with your words, if you ask me a question, what could my player have done better to not get that, that blocking foul called on them? If you ask that question, or what, how can I teach my player to be better on that? And ask leading questions like that, man, I'm going to tell you. Like, and then you're going to know, and maybe it's maybe I made the wrong call on that. But if you ask it that way, then I might say, you know what, coach, I, I think they were in a legal position. I might have missed that call. I'm going to go back and watch that one on film. Yeah, okay. communication communication goes a very, very long way from uh, body language, eye contact, as we talked about after you make a play, and, and certainly the words that you use when you're talking to to officials. Um, as we round out the podcast, I know we have some college coaches that listen to our podcast as well, and you wanted to talk a little bit about some of the changes to not the college rules, but how some of them are being interpret, interpreted. So. Go ahead. All right. Perfect. Yeah. So we've, we've spent a lot of time on a couple of your podcasts already doing a deep dive into the traveling rule. Mm-hmm. Okay? There's no changes for NFHS on the traveling rule this year. However, I am going to start out by saying that it is a point of emphasis this year. Um, now, while the, the NCAA is getting more lax in our, in our 
adjudication of the, the traveling rule, um, NFHS is doubling down, okay? So while the rules for traveling between NFHS and NCAA are essentially the same, almost word for word in a lot of cases, um, they're interpreted a little differently on three specific plays in NCAA men's this year, okay? So in NCAA men's, if you're watching a men's college basketball game this year, you're going to see less traveling violations called on spin moves, on step backs, okay, and on like jump stops, all right, and euro steps, okay, on euro steps. So euro steps, spin moves, and step backs are three points of emphasis for NCAA men's this year. And here's how they approach it. Um, with those three specific, pl specific plays, they have been called travels a lot in the past. But this year, we're instructed that majority of these moves are going to be legal. It needs to be super obvious that a traveling violation has occurred for us to call it on these three specific moves. All right. Super obvious. Now, they've even gone as far as to say this. And some people like it. Some people don't. A lot of people agree with going this direction because it's more on these three plays, spin move, step back, and euro step. It's the NCAA men's is going to more of a NBA FIBA type interpretation. It's almost like, it's almost like they're changing the rule without changing the rule and that they're going to these things. It almost feels like they're going to the gather step or the zero step on these moves in college now for spin move. Euro step and step back because now for a step back if that player ends their dribble with one foot on the floor on a hard plant and pushes off that foot to step back and lands on their other foot followed by their their original foot they ended their dribble on in high school that's 100 percent of travel by rule guess what by rule in college men's college that is 100 percent of travel however on a step back, they're now wanting us to say, to judge if it, the feet landed at approximately the same time, to judge it as a simultaneous landing. Even though we know it's not a simultaneous landing in some instances, if they land pat pat, so if they end their dribble with one foot on the floor on a hard plant with their left foot on the floor, put launch off that left foot and push back and step back and then land right left, then they're considering that approximately the same time that those two feet were landing. And that's going to be ruled just as if it would on a legal jump stop where you push off one foot with the ball in your possession and land simultaneously on both feet. So that is going to be interpreted that way in men's college this year. Likewise with Euro steps and spin moves. Um, one of the case plays that we have in our NCAA men's case book um, real, it says this verbatim, if the official is uncertain whether or not the ball handler ended their dribble with one foot off the floor or both feet off the floor, the benefit of the doubt should rest with the ball handler, the dribbler, having made a legal play by ending their dribble with both feet off the floor. Verbatim, that's what it says in the, in the case book. So they want us to be absolutely certain. That's them kind of poking us and saying, hint, hint, don't call this a travel you know, on, on some of these plays in men's college, on the Euro step and the spin move, if they end it with one foot on the floor, spin, step with their other step or other foot, and then replace that or replant that foot on the floor, you know, on the spin move, they're kind of wanting us to let those go this year. Unless it's super obvious or like, let's say when they're spinning, they do a double tap or like a hop on a foot, you know, then, then we're going to get that. 
but for the most part, Euro steps, spin moves, you're not going to see a lot of travels called on those or step backs because it's not even like on the step back, it's not even a pat pat. They've even shown examples of plays they want to be ruled legal this year. They end their dribble with their left foot on the floor, launch or push back off that left foot, and then land right, left. I mean, like, not even right, left. It's like right, <laughs> left, and they're saying approximately the same time. And in and th- and that kind of cadence, they're still saying it's, it should be ruled as legal. So everything I just said about spin moves, Euro steps, and step backs – for the NCAA men's interpretation this year is the complete opposite for NFHS. They doubled down. So the gotcha. last thing say about this is if you injure dribble with one foot on the floor and step back and land, so left foot on the floor for your hard plant and land right, left, then that's a travel in NFHS. And I want to emphasize when Chip says you end your dribble, that does not mean two hands on the ball. It could but it could just be one hand underneath the ball. You've ended your dribble. Yes, I'm glad you pointed that out. Important distinction. You can end your dribble in a variety of ways. Two hands on the ball is one of them, but it doesn't have to be, as Steve said. If your hand comes under the ball and, and allows that ball to come to rest in one or both hands, it says in the, the rule book, in one or both hands, then you have effectively ended your dribble. Also have to point out, that the end of your dribble is not the last time the ball touches the floor. It's actually when you quote unquote gather the ball by ending your dribble with either placing two hands on the ball, putting one hand under the ball um, to bring the ball to a pause or allow it to come to rest in one or both hands. You could also end your dribble. We see that we're seeing this a lot more now by the ball handler on a dribble drive to the lane, trapping the ball against their body and cradling the ball against their body to go through traffic. Okay like a running back would through a, you know, through a, a pile. So, so that's, that's what we call it when we work on that, the running back. Oh, really? That's what I, I call it anyway. But, and so I want to say this about, and I think I might've said it before in another podcast with you, but that's a, that's a trigger for me as an official. If I see the, the ball handler, the dribbler in my primary coverage area on a dribble drive and I see them cradle the ball against their body, it's super easy for me to identify that they ended their dribble. So I immediately look to their feet. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's really hardly any lapse in time, you know, that small kind of millisecond of time that it takes me to look from the, the ball to the feet, uh, the hands to the feet. It is super easy for me to identify the end of the dribble if they cradle it against their body. If you end the dribble with one, with one hand and allow it to come to rest, it's harder to identify that the dribble is ended because in some of those cases, it looks like the dribble could still be live. You know, like you could still dribble again yeah. after the and it wouldn't be a, a double dribble or an illegal yeah. dribble. So it's super hard to identify the end of the dribble when it's in one hand. Both hands, like you see this a lot, the low, you end your dribble super low going through mm-hmm. track. Oh, yeah. Kind of that little quick power dribble. And you yeah. end up kind of I call that one the hardened pickup a lot of times. Perfect. The hardened pickup. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So you're going through traffic. As soon, if you're, <laughs> I, I know this should go without saying, but as an official who can't look to the feet until you've ended your dribble, it, so I can't be, I can't look to see to identify a pivot foot until I identify first that the dribble is ended. Cause we've, as we've discussed on previous podcasts, a basketball rule fundamental is it is impossible to travel during a dribble. So I can't identify a pivot foot until I identify the end of the dribble. So when I, if you're doing that low pickup like that, 
the ball and your hands are right next to your feet. <laughs> so I don't have to look very far when I transfer my eyes from the ball to the feet. So it's super easy for me to identify which foot was on the floor. So if you end your dribble low like that and you got your left foot on the floor in high school and then you step with your right foot and then return your left foot to the ground and then release the shot, that's your pivot foot lifted and returned to the floor. Yeah, before Just travel. Or try for goal. And that's a travel. Um, now that's going to be permitted in NCAA men's this year, um, even though their rules state otherwise. Um, but the interpretation this year, and that's all I'll say about that. But I, I, there's a thought and a, a common theme among a lot of basketball rules um, aficionados that they wish that the NCAA would, men's would have just their rule to the traveling rule to the gather step or zero step rule um, for those three moves because that's essentially what they did. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll see it down the road. We might. And there's a lot of people that are excited about that. They want college basketball to go that direction, you know, to allow more, you know, offensive you know, but it makes it super hard on the defense in a lot of mm-hmm. cases. So mm-hmm. I understand both sides of the argument. Um, and, and I'm not here to argue one side or the other, because ultimately at the end of the day, I have to do as I'm told. So it doesn't matter what my opinion is. I don't make the rules and they don't ask my opinion on them. So <laughs> we just got to do what we're told on that and, and officiate the game the right way. So our goal, last thing I'll say, our goal is to get the plays right. Okay. Um, yeah, John, John Adams, former NCAA men's coordinator of basketball officials, um, was, um, is very adamant about three things that make a really good official. You know, if you can, you got to get the plays right. That's our number one objective, get the plays right. You got to be an adequate communicator. We've talked a little bit about that today, right? You know, when it comes down to sporting conduct and stuff like that, a lot of times we can handle those things if we can adequately communicate with coaches. Last thing I'll say about this, and I, I hate to go back to it, but I just wanted to make we're things that we're taught is to is kind of this book called Verbal Judo. I've talked about it from time to time. I don't know if I've talked about it here, but responding rather than reacting. When you react, the event controls you. When you respond, you're in control. We're teaching our officials that in high school. We want to respond to coaches who are reacting and react back in kind because we can't. We got to be above that as officials. Everybody expects us to remain even kill and handle our emotions, but they, they don't expect themselves to do that, you know, Uh, but we've got to be above the fray on that. Um, But we want to have empathy. And then another thing we've taught our officials is that is things that college, and I'm just going to kind of clue you guys in on this college assigners, college coordinators are talking about this. Um, The adult parent child relationship as it pertains to the officials and coaches. If a coach asks you a question or, or talks to you as an official, like an adult, you respond to them like an adult. So professional and professional, right? Adult, adult. Like if they, if they talk to you that way, you talk back to them that way. In a professional way, you communicate with them and you respond like an adult would. If a coach or a player acts like a child towards the official, then we have to be the parent. It's just, I don't, I don't want to sugarcoat that with you guys. I'm just being real with you. If, if, and, and I, the same thing goes the other way. I already talked, I led off with saying officials are not above this. We're not above the law. We are going to be held accountable. We're going to hold our high school officials accountable. And I know as a college official, I'm held accountable. If I treat a coach with disrespect, I'm not going to get any games in college. 
So we're trying to bring that down to high school, even though it's a little tougher than some of them are just in it for the money. That's okay. They, some of them just want to give back to the game. They don't have goals to become a big, big time official someday. So, but we're trying to pass that down. We, it will not be tolerated, but likewise, if a player or a coach acts like a child to an official, then we have to be the parent and we have to penalize accordingly. Think of the word discipline, right? Sure. We have to discipline with a technical foul or we have to do that. So loud and boisterous, stomping on the floor, walking a couple steps out on the court to yell at the official. Those are things we would classify as childlike behavior. So, you know, at that point, we just have to be the parent and we're not going to be able to talk to you and communicate with you when you're like that. All right. So then we just have to use the tools in our tool belt and penalize accordingly. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, Chip. I mean, we've talked about player control. We've talked about timeouts, screening, and a handful of situations and variations. We've, we spent a ton of time on unsportsmanlike conduct from various sides and what that can look like. Um, talking about traveling at the high school as well as the college level um, and some of the, the points of emphasis throughout the course of this season. So thank you very much for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge. And Steve, thanks for having me back on. You know I love being on here with you, man. I could I could talk shop all day with you, especially when it comes to officiating. I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about coaches, too. I'm passionate about the job that you do. Uh, man, I hope all of you coaches that are listening have an incredible season. I wish you nothing but success and happiness and health to you and your players and your staffs. Um, so, man, go out there and be great this season. If you ever need anything, I, I think Steve will probably drop, drop, drop my – contact information and maybe the description and I'll send that to him and make sure he does. I'm always available for coaches. I always, whether it's Twitter DM, Instagram DM, whether you text me, whether you email me, I'm always available for you guys. If I can help in any way, help you better understand a specific rule or a specific concept or what we look for on plays or positioning or coverage or anything, it doesn't matter. I have coaches reach out to me about all things officiating. So I will be happy to help in any way I can. I appreciate that. And I'll definitely put your contact information in the description of, of the podcast. Coaches, if, if you found this beneficial, go back and listen to a couple of our past episodes with Chip as he really takes a deep dive into different areas. Obviously, we'd appreciate a positive rating and a positive review that goes a long way as we try to give as many coaches as we can the, the edge through the Coach's Edge podcast. Um, Chip, is a, he's a growing leader in the officiating world. So he's a great follow on social media to keep in track. And as he mentioned, to reach out to for any questions, um, I can tell you firsthand that I've reached out to him a handful of times over the past year or two on some certain things. And he always gets back to me. Um, we have some great conversations out of it. So thank you for listening to Coach's Edge. Chip, thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. Appreciate you, Steve. Y'all have a great one. Have a good season. Thanks again, man. I appreciate you having me on. Yes, sir. Get after it today. Thank you to Chip for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge podcast. Thank you as a coach for listening. I want to wish you luck as you really dive into basketball season. If there's anything that I can do for you, let me know. If there's anything that Chip can do for you, reach out to him. Uh, he's, he's a great follow on Twitter and easy to access there. Um, the things that we touched on in this episode, I know can be beneficial to a lot of people, both players, coaches, and officials as well. So be sure to share this out. Obviously, a positive rating and review goes a really long way. And if you're interested in a little more of what we have going on with Kramer basketball, with the Coach's Edge, please reach out. 
let me know. Again, I said I don't want to help out as much as I can. We have a couple youth basketball clinics going on in Michigan and Ohio over Christmas break that we're finishing up registration for. We have some really good offense zone packages for high school basketball coaches. We have a really good practice planning package that we've put together trying to figure out the different ways for my communication with different coaches of how we can best serve you throughout the course of this basketball season. So again, if there's anything that I can do for you, please let me know. Thank you for listening. And as always, get after today.